Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. This is episode number 145. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu, my king, our father, our king. Lord, we thank you for bringing us together once again. Week after week, we are given the privilege of being able to study and to share thoughts with one another, just to connect with one another across the miles and pray for one another and to laugh with one another. Lord, I um, pray that you'll continue to uh, equip us as uh, students of the word. We are eager to be ambassadors of your kingdom, and we realize that this is an awesome responsibility to um, uh, not just to study your words and to equip ourselves, but to um, share what we learn with one another. So I thank you for the, this uh, particular platform, the YouTube videos, the iTunes podcasts, the websites, the, the blogs, and the things like that. Um, just uh, such an awesome uh, um, opportunity to connect with people and to, to, to build one another up in Messiah in this way. Continue to protect us and raise us up and give us a voice, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Bishim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week once more for a live internet study program. Um, my name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a member and Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunva The Harvest. Like you can see on my screen right now, we'd like to have you join us in person. We are, of course, opening our doors since things are seeming to um, improve, at least in America. You can also join us online. Uh, graftedin.com is our website, the uh, the Harvest's website. As you can see on my screen right now, Mark is finalizing his uh, series on the uh, the the um. Well, I think he really did finalize the the series on the the fivefold ministries, and now he's kind of just kind of putting a bow on it, or um, moving into this idea of threefold mandate, talking about the um, the vision of the harvest there, Yeshua, baptism, and the Torah. So, if you get a chance, if you can't visit us in person, we'll then catch our YouTube videos. Since you're online, why don't you head on over to TetzeTorah.com, which is my Torah teaching website, at T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. And from there, you can um, have access to all of the teachings that I put out. As you can see, all the links on my screen right there point to Internet teachings. And these days, I'm pretty busy turning most of those teachings into YouTube videos or iTunes podcasts. Speaking of YouTube, head on out to my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetzay Torah Ministries. And as you can see on my screen, I've got lots to offer there. If you click on the videos tab, you'll see that um, 
I'm busy uploading a video nearly every day of the week. So um, if you do hit my YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe so that you can become part of the YouTube family. But you want to make sure you hit the little bell for notifications so that you're uh, notified whenever I do upload a new video. Also, if you like what you're watching, hit a th hit the thumbs up, right? Uh, give me a like. Tell me that um, you appreciate what I'm doing for you guys out there. Or if you don't like it, then you can hit the thumbs down too. But I really hope you do like the content. Um, also, don't forget to comment. Tell me what you um, what you've gleaned, what you've learned, or what what challenged you. Or uh, tell me where you disagree. Tell me what you'd like to see, um, and I'll see what I can do about putting together those types of videos. And then lastly, hit the little arrow that shows and allows you to share the content with your friends, family members, your social media circles, and things like that. That would really be cool. Alrighty, uh, these are the live internet studies. These are live internet studies uh, that I bring to you week after week. Just real quick, uh, this is what it looks like. This is episode number 145. We meet uh, uh, each week, and tonight's meeting is July 5th, 2021, for the USA date. The meeting dates are Monday evenings from 7 p.m. to approximately 8 p.m. We uh, cover an hour's worth of teaching, broken up into two 30-minute segments. Segment one is Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fast and Food, oh my. We're in part 61 tonight. Segment two is Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. We're in paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, part 78. And we're working our way through um, some review material, probably this week and uh, next week, and then maybe the week after that, we'll be ready to start actually in paper three, which deals with the Holy Spirit in our Trinity study. And then we'll watch a featured YouTube video tonight from my short question, short answer live series. They're about this video is a little longer, so it's 10 minutes. And we watched it actually a few months back, but um, at least it was featured a few months back. I don't know if we specifically watched it on this particular study, but should Christians celebrate Passover? Um, we'll look at that question and revisit it. If you'd like to join us for the uh, live internet studies week after week, get access to Skype. See the big, big blue Skype banner on my uh, screen right now? Well, if you're on my website at takesatora.com, you click that link, it'll take you right into the Skype study. Uh, nothing else needed to do. So we'd lo love to have you join us for Skype. If you don't have Skype or a Skype account, read down through some of the details that I uh, list here on this particular page, and it'll give you details on how to join Skype if you don't have a, um, a Skype app or don't have a Skype account or something like that. And then while you're on my website, take a brief moment and just scroll down to the very bottom of the website or that, at that black section there and uh, notice the little yellow donate button just above all that Hebrew writing there. If um, you'd like to bless me and uh, help me continue to keep these teachings going and just um, uh, be a blessing to me financially, this is the opportunity to do that. You click the donate button there. It'll send money via either PayPal or credit card or, or, or um, debit card or bank account or something like that. But it's all secure, so you don't have to worry about uh, any type of um, issues there. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to Romans 14 Unplugged, Feasts and Fast and Food, oh my. We're working our way uh, through the commentary that I put together. It is available on my website at tatesator.com. And we're still in the introduction, background, and historical audience. So let's just bump that uh, font up and scroll down to where we need to start. We've been reading through um, the uh, conclusion section, so let me find it here. And we started looking at this uh, quote from the Mystery of Romans from um, Mark 
Nanus, and we read the first paragraph there. So let's just pick up our reading right there uh, and jump into this study. This is a quote from Mark Nanos' book, and this is a um, appreciative look at the background of Mark of um, Paul's letter to the Book of Romans, particularly how history helps us um, get a better insight into perhaps why Paul wrote the letter. The, obviously the historical audience, the intended uh, group of recipients, and things like that. But um, we're looking at this through the lens of how it impacts Jews and Gentiles, not just of the first century, but more importantly also how it impacts Jews and Gentiles of today's 21st century. So let's read this. Mark Nandos says, quote, There's good reason then, historically, to suggest that Paul's instructions in Romans may have been excuse me, may have been directed to Gentile Christians who were in need of being reminded boldly of their obligation to subordinate themselves to the governing authorities of the synagogues to which they were attached, including such matters as obedience to the operative halachot, that is to say group policy, uh, group rules, things like that. That's what we mean by halachot. Uh, the, the group rules for defining proper behavior for righteous Gentiles, i.e. the uh, apostolic decree, the Noahide commandments, which were kind of still being developed at this time in the first century, and the payment of taxes and other community obligations. So the premise that Mark Nanos is working from, um, which I think has uh, some merit, he's not the only historian that holds this position, but the idea is that the first century Christian groups were not completely separated from their Jewish synagogal community counterparts at the time of Paul's writing in the mid-50s. Indeed, it wouldn't be until later on that century, closer to 70 AD and even after, when the destruction of the temple took place in Jerusalem, that we would begin to notice the fractioning of the separation of the Jewish uh, synagogues from the Christian church communities. Um, and as we kept moving further into the, um, uh, uh, towards the end of the first century and into the second century, we began to see uh, noticeable um, distinctions between who was a Christian and who was, say, a Messianic Jew or who was a traditional Jew. So uh, today, I mean, we can obviously um, identify who's Christian, who's Jewish, who's church, who's synagogue, and, you know, essentially who's church and who's Israel. Um, the, heart, the, the break between the two is, is obvious. But in Paul's day, it wasn't that obvious. And part of this is due to the fact that Christians were still attached to the synagogue. There wasn't really any other option for the Gentile Christians to turn to. That's the point I'm trying to make. There wasn't the establishment of the Christian church. Um, even Catholicism didn't exist in Paul's day, right? I mean, as old as it is, as old as Orthodox Greek Orthodox Christianity is, um, it just wasn't around in Paul's day. There wasn't even any Islam, right? I mean, Paul couldn't even point them in that direction, as absurd as that sounds. The point is, Christianity was a subset of Judaism. It was a sect of Judaism. And as a daughter of the mother Judaism, the attachment between the two communities was strong, even though traditional Jews were still in blindness mode, kind of um, uh, some of them in rebellious mode. Um, 
backsliding, stumbling, Israel is what Paul would describe them as in, in elsewhere in the book of Romans. So this is why it's relevant for us to uh, think about these things. When we're reading through his letter and we, we encounter discussions about the Sabbath, and topics about uh, clean and unclean foods, and and uh, what should we do about idolatry, and um, uh, you know feasts and fasts and food. Oh my, like my study's called. It's too easy, as I interject for a moment. It's too easy for us as modern Christians to superimpose our own modern perspective of, well, of course the Torah is done away with. Of course the church and synagogue are separate from one another. Of course they've replaced Sabbath with Sunday. Of course no one has to keep the dietary laws and things like that. It's too easy for us to superimpose that perspective on top of Paul's um, readership um, because we think that that suits our theology and it fits us better for us to, to kind of operate that with that mindset. But that does damage to the historical reality of it's quite probable and entirely possible that the Christians would not have thought of um, Sunday versus Sabbath. The topic just didn't enter their, their thought process. Um, how do we uh, uh, govern our lives now that we have joined Israel's God and have been counted as righteous due to the, our faith in Messiah? Um, what is the lifestyle that we should be following after? Do we just continue on along as pagans? Well, Paul would say no. Um, and there's no other um, comparative religion to turn to. So Judaism was that expression of, of their faith and it suited their needs, and thus it made sense for them to stay connected to the synagogue and to the authorities, even though there were differences between the synagogue and the messianic theology that was that was um, being developed in the first century. So let's keep reading. That is, Paul and the Christian Jews, right, messianic Jews and Gentiles of Rome, they both understood their community or communities as part of the Jewish community slash communities when Paul wrote Romans with Christian Gentiles, identified as righteous Gentiles, that's a kind of a technical term, righteous Gentiles. There were a group of people in Paul's day who were making a break from paganism, but had not made a complete, um, uh, what do we say, uh, a conversion to Judaism as an identity, as an ethnic identity. So they weren't legally recognized as Jews, but they were interested in the monotheistic beliefs of Judaism. They were interested in the um, community life of Judaism. They indeed were embracing the lifestyle of Judaism without becoming Jews. And thus, um, traditional Judaism of Paul's day, right, the authoritative Jews, the religious Jews, they still kept these God-fearers, these righteous Gentiles, a bit at arm's length. They restricted some activities. They weren't, they, they, you know, uh, righteous Gentiles weren't allowed to go the full mile when it came to keeping Torah. There were certain, um, uh, what we might call privileges that were withheld uh, until you made the full uh, step into conversion, right? This would be, of course, physical circumcision for your male and things like that. But nevertheless, gener uh, generally speaking, there was an acceptance of Gentiles in the synagogue communities as long as these Gentiles behaved 
righteously, as long as they respected Israel's God, Israel's belief, Israel's Torah, Israel's place in the covenant, as long as they played their part to keep the synagogue running, right, you know, gave a certain amount of support. So it wasn't like the Gentiles were not allowed. I mean, read through the book of Acts, and you'll find Gentiles in numbers, quite a lot of Gentiles hanging out around the synagogues. And for, for what reason, right? They were um, they were religion shopping, right? They were they perhaps they were tired of of the um, the state led um, uh, paganism. You know, they were they were sick of the, um, the the pantheon of gods. Perhaps you know all of the mandatory prostitution that Rome uh, 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 sponsored and things like that. They, they 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 were you know they were sick to their stomach of it. And Israel's monotheism was attractive to them. So uh, it made sense for Paul to encounter righteous Gentiles as he ministered in the synagogues and then to continue to um, tell them, hey, this is the place you need to stay. This is where you're going to learn the truths of God. This is where you're going to hear about the Torah. This is where you're going to understand what it means to be um, to walk righteously and be uh, acceptable in God's sight. So um, stay where you're at. Um, Obviously, you can form church groups, home groups, and and small assemblies and things like that. But um, from a uh, um, from a corporate people group perspective, there aren't any other alternatives. There's no other religion that I want to point you in the direction of. This is Paul talking to the Gentiles in his day. There's nowhere else I'm going to tell you, hey, go down the street to you know XYZ Church and establish membership there. That's not going to happen. And I certainly, as Paul would, as I conclude, Paul would say, I certainly certainly don't want you to continue going to the pagan places of worship like you did before, right? You need to make a break from all of that lifestyle, and uh, uh, Judaism is an attractive place to find the truth. So, these Christian Gentiles were identified as righteous Gentiles, and they were the ones who were now worshiping in the midst of Israel, and catch this, in fulfillment of the eschatological in-gathering of the nations, uh, and you can pick this up in um, uh, Romans 15, 5 through 12. And I want you to do me a favor, those of you who are listening to this podcast, watching this YouTube video, stop this week and take a moment, do yourself a favor, go back and read Romans chapter 15 and focus on the first 12 verses, like I have listed in my commentary there, uh, 5 through 12 specifically. You're going to find that the um, important uh, details that Paul is trying to get the Gentiles of his letter to understand and appreciate is that Israel's prophecies, the prophecy of old, the Israel's prophets, foretold of a time when the Gentiles would hear the message of the gospel and be brought into proximity to the people of Israel and join with the people of Israel as covenant people groups. Those who were not formerly not a people would be called a people, right? Those who were not my people would be called my people, like Peter, like uh, the book of, uh, I think it's Second Peter talks about, Second Peter chapter 4, I think, chapter 6, I'm drawing a blank. Um, you were not, formerly not a people are now my people. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter, I think it's chapter um, 9 as well. Quoting from the uh, the prophet section there, the point Paul's bringing up is that the nations being brought into a covenant relationship with God and being counted as righteous is part of Israel's prophetic 
fulfillment. So to have Gentiles in their midst was not something that was a bad thing. Israel was beginning to realize that this was an indication that the end of days was approaching. That's at least the way Paul saw it, right? Eschatologically, that's what we mean end times. That's what it means that's what eschatology was referring to. End time uh, studies, end time events. Paul read through the prophets. He saw that God would gather the Gentiles in with the existing people of God, namely the Jewish people. He would join the two together and bring the two together as one people of God. Paul saw that this was prophetic. He didn't know exactly how soon it would take place. But as he witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit going out and bringing the Gentiles in via faith in Messiah, he began to put the picture together and realize that the end is upon us. The end is here. The end of days is, has dawned with the coming of Messiah. And indeed, for the last 2,000 years, we've been living in the end times. It's a bit longer than Paul probably anticipated. I don't know exactly how much the Holy Spirit revealed to him how long the end of days would last. I don't know if he really knew that it would be 2,000 plus years long. But that's, that's beside the point. The point I'm trying to bring up is, in that section of Romans, you're going to find that the Gentiles are joining with the people of God, and the people of God that are mentioned are the Jewish people. So, what's my point? Why am I stressing this fact? When you read through the Apostolic Scriptures, aka your New Testament, don't factor in some uh, some artificial um, uh, uh, element that uh, keeps the Gentiles and the Jewish people separated from one another. Just don't do that. You're doing yourself a disservice. Paul didn't see the Gentiles as separate and distinct from national Israel when it came to um, covenant promises and things like that. Um, He saw a deficiency on Israel's side. Yes, they were blinded. Yes, they were stumbling. Yes, they were in in, uh, a partial hardening mode. Um, But nevertheless, he saw that the Gentiles were joining the people of God, and indeed, it was now the responsibility of the Gentiles to reach out to those disenfranchised, uh, stumbling Israelites and help bring them back into the the proper place that God had called for them and indeed prepared for them as covenant members. So, um, hopefully this is beginning to... uh, Get you excited as you study your Bible, particularly your New Testament sections. Let's keep reading through my uh, study here. These are my own words. In addition uh, to what Mark Nanos just talked about, um, uh, writing about the uh, details that are surrounding Claudius's expulsion, right? We're talking about Emperor Claudius, uh, who expelled the Jews sometime before Paul wrote the letter to the Book of Romans, um, and how it impacts his letter, how it would have impacted his letter, the Jewish people coming back into Rome, how it would have impacted the communities of Gentiles in Rome, their mindset towards Jewish people, etc., etc. Here's what Nanos reminds us of in this lengthy quote from a free essay that he provided Uh, to his own website at marknanos.com, I believe. So let's read another quote from Mark Nanos. Here's what he has to say. Quote, In the past 40 years or so, the traditional interpretations of Romans have developed a new historical construct that supposedly explains how it came to be that the Christ followers that Paul addressed in the mid to late 50s CE were presumably already meeting separately from the Jewish communities of Rome. Now, this was the natural result 
of an expulsion of the Jews from Rome during the reign of Claudius, which is usually dated to 49 CE, although some date this to 41 CE. So, he's just picking up uh, history that we're already aware of. He continues, according to this construct that we're talking about, this expulsion was supposedly precipitated by conflicts between Christ followers and the larger Jewish community. Understand how there's some um, gaps in history. Uh, even historians are not exactly sure why the expulsion was um, needed. Why did Claudius feel the, necess uh, the necessity to kick either all of the Jewish people out or a certain segment of the Jewish people out? And then, exactly how many people were expelled, right? How did that impact all of the Jewish people? Um, it was a very short, quick expulsion, right? It only lasted a short five years, or if I got my time frame correct. But nevertheless, if, if all the Jewish people were kicked out of Rome, why don't we have other historians like, say, Josephus and, and uh, Suetonius and other writers um, giving more details concerning this? We know that Luke, we're going to read about this in a second, we know that Luke mentions the expulsion, but to what extent could it have been all the Jews? Could it have been a partial amount of Jews? Why do we even care today? I'll tell you why I care, is because if there was... A uh, little to no Jewish presence in Rome uh, when Paul wrote the letter, right? Then it would make sense that the the Gentiles would really be separate and cut off from any Jewish counterparts, any synagogal association, and perhaps maybe we do ne have Paul needing to. Uh, explain to them that, you know, you guys are really on your own. You're separated. You're distinct. Um, no need to try to seek out any Jewish. Um, connection. No Jewish communities. Don't worry about all that because, you know, um, the uh, expulsion cut them off and, um, you know, they're, they're, just, they're just not going to uh, be helpful for you anyway. So uh, I'm, of course, oversimplifying everything, but I don't think that's really what's taking place. Let's read what Mark Natos has to continue to teach us here. This construct that because of the expulsion, uh, the uh, Gentiles were basically cut off from their Jewish counterparts. This construction is based upon a reading of two early 2nd century CE accounts. Suetonius briefly mentions a conflict regarding someone named Crestus. And uh, Suetonius is um, another historian from the 1st century. Uh, he talks about this in his uh, work Claudius at uh, chapter 25, section 4, which led to an expulsion of the Jews for turbulence within their communities, right? So this is well known. Um, the the uh, disturbance would have been, uh, um, you know, disturbing the Pax or peace so central to Roman imperial rule. And also we can read about this, um, as I mentioned, in Acts 18.2. And there we find that Luke notes that Aquila and Priscilla were also expelled from Rome along with all the Jews, right? Notice that the Im Roman emperors would not have made a distinction between who was a Messianic Jew and it was a non-Messianic Jew. And I, I submit that because of the similarities between first century Christianity and their connection to Judaism as a sect, I submit to you that a good number of Gentiles could perhaps have been swept up along within that expulsion because of their resemblance to um, Jews just by nature of the religion that they were following. Remember, first century Christianity was for a, a lack of a better explanation, um, first century Judaism. They, they, there's, their resemblance was, it had overlapped. 
um, uh, you know, they resembled one another. So it, it would have been very difficult, in my opinion, for uh, Roman authorities to just make a clear distinction between, between, wait a minute, oh, you guys are Christians and you guys are Jews, right? The, you know, Christians would have looked like Jews uh, because of the religion that they were practicing. And, and of course, we're not talking about dropping your pants and uh, showing your circumcisions, right? That's, that's a different discussion altogether. We're not even going to go there. All right, here's what Nanos has to say. The conclusion uh, from the assumptions that we make today uh, without the help of history uh, the conclusion is drawn in that since the Jews were forced to leave Rome under Claudius, the emperor, the only, or at least most of, the Christ followers who remained were non-Jews. Again, it's an assumption. Uh, we can't really make that assumption safely because we don't know how Rome would have identified Christians versus uh, religious Jews. Again, the religion looked identical uh, for the most part. For the most part, um, there obviously were Roman citizens who were um, practicing forms of Judaism that were probably more closely resembling, say, Greco-Roman lifestyle. In other words, they were less um, connected to Judaism in some form. But nevertheless, um, I think that it's safe to say that there were probably a good number of non-Jews who would have been mistaken for Jews at this particular time. I think we can make that safe assumption. Uh, Nanos continues, even if some Jews remained uh, in Rome, the Christ-following communities, right, the Christian communities, were no longer a part of the Jewish community, even if this were the case, even if by choice or by default, uh, being responsible for such a cataclysmic disruption of life for, if not the expulsion of, some estimated, we say by numbers, 20,000 or 50,000 Jewish people. So what he's trying to say is that even if some Jews remained, the the communities that were there, um, they would have been ripped apart from one another. I mean, let's just say that Rome was able to distinguish Christians from Jews. This breaking apart of the communities would not have really been a good thing. It really would have been a bad thing. Cataclysmic disruption, disruption of life. Um, keep in mind that the uh, uh, synagogue communities would have been the ones who would have been supplying the religious, um, a lot of the religious exemptions for some of those Christians who were attached to them. You know, hey, Mr. Emperor, we don't want to worship as pagans because we're attached to Judaism. Uh, we'd like to um, take advantage of the same exemptions that they do. Um, you know, uh, we'd like to meet in their uh, synagogue groups and worship alongside of them. So don't persecute us as pagans. Um, don't persecute us uh, uh, in certain ways. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think the Christian groups would have probably realize that this was a bad thing for the Jewish communities to have to be expelled. I don't think they would have been saying, yeah, wow, wow, good riddance, right? We're finally free of, the, of, of having to be attached to them. Let's form our own groups and let's just, let's just um, uh, you know, self-identify. I, I don't think they were so quick to do that, uh, particularly if they understand Paul's uh, sentiments towards his fellow Jewish people correctly. Uh, it is maintained that the Christ followers who did remain in Rome, developed their own identity as Christians. This is the assumption by today's standards. However labeled, and their ethos in the natural direction of Gentile, in contrast to Jewish values, to define communal life. So it's assumed that 
the the Christians made a break from Judaism. This was may have been may have been the opportunity to make a break, and um, because of the expulsion, maybe it's time to start forming your own groups. Now it is true that um, some amount of of um, autonomy started taking place. I, I mean, this is evident by the fact that Paul's going to warn them not to think too high-mindedly of um, being uh, in a position where you think you might not need the Jewish people anymore. Um, you know, hey, they are the ones that are supporting you. But if you think that you don't need their support, then you need to watch out. So yeah, Paul was beginning to suspect that, and he hadn't even really been in the area, right? Remember, he's not going to visit Rome until um, uh, till the 60s. Um, but uh, nevertheless, the Christian communities that were still uh, there in Rome would have had to um, uh, put together the pieces on how they can continue to function as a people of God without their Jewish counterparts there. So, uh, Nanos writes, thus, a few years later, when Jews began to return under Nero, right beginning in 54 CE, um, uh, uh, we could... We could of course, based the assumption on that upon his death, based, I guess, there's, I think there's a typo, based on the assumption that upon his death, Claudius' policy was allowed to, to terminate, although there's no evidence that uh, Nero himself reversed any such exile of Rome's Jews as a policy decision. So, so we could just assume that um, uh, uh, upon uh, Claudius' death, that Nero just uh, stepped in and filled in the gap there. Um, he says that those who were Christ followers, right, the, the um, Roman citizens who were still there, including those who were formerly in leadership roles within the Christ-following subgroups of the Jewish communities, right, keep in mind we're still talking about the people that would have survived, uh, they were not being welcomed back without reservations. So we have Jewish leaders who were established leaders in the church groups, Messianic Jewish leaders, um, but then suddenly the edict kicks in. These Jews are told to leave. Let's suppose that they are, in fact, among the groups that get kicked out. Then we have this um, a gap, a void to fill. You know, we suddenly lose certain X amount of Jewish leaderships as Christian groups, and then the exile uh, comes to an end. Five years is a short amount of time. The Jewish people are allowed to come back in. And then what happens with those Jewish leaders who were in who held that position formerly? They try to go back to those same uh, uh, church groups and say, "Hey, can I come back? Can I pick up where I left off?" Uh, this is what the challenge that we would have been looking at. Rather than being welcomed back without reservations, uh, Nano says they were being greeted, if at all, with the proposition that they, the Jewish leaders, needed to adopt a more strengthened, i.e. non-Judaism-based approach to Christian values, such as Paul is generally imagined to have upheld, uh, e.g. in Romans 14. So, essentially, the basic Christian perspective as I'm drawing this section of my stomach commentary to close, we'll pick this up next week. The basic Christian assumption is that this was an opportunity for the Christian groups to actually begin to formulate their own leadership as Gentile Christians and to really um, not be so dependent upon their Jewish leaders and the Jewish synagogal um, uh, communities for any type of interaction and um, establishing of policies, halakha, and things like that. So perhaps maybe it's assumed that this was the opportunity and the, and the, the, uh, the kind of the providence that God was uh, demonstrating that 
Christianity may need to make a break from Judaism. This new lifestyle, let's suppose, revolved around rejection of the Torah-defined ways of life that distinguish Jews from non-Jews, such as what? Circumcision, Sabbath, and other calendrical observances. Of course, we've got the kosher dietary customs and so on. So, um, whether or not that was the formal decision of the Gentile church leadership at the time, we can't be certain. But we do know that there was the occasion for Gentile Christians to begin to um, move away from some semblance of a Jewish lifestyle, uh, so much so that Paul is perhaps maybe prompted by the Holy Spirit to pin certain parts of his letters in Romans, like, say, chapters 9 through 11, and warn the Gentile Christians about developing a theology and a mindset that by today's first, uh, today's 21st century uh, standards would amount to some form of replacement theology or supersessionism, or something like that, where we're imagining that the church has replaced Judaism, uh, the New Testament is in, the Old Testament's out, things like that. Well, of course, you guys are familiar with, that's the basic sentiment that we have in today's Christian circles. So, Nanus uh, concludes, there are many reasons to be suspicious of this particular construction, about assuming that this is really um, uh, what happened and the way it really played out and that um, that's, the, uh, uh, that's what we should accept. The sources, these are some of the reasons he says we should see uh, suspicious. The sources are unclear and conflict with each other, and it's doubtful that Paul would have approached that level of ethnicity-based discrimination already being expressed in communal policies legitimated in the name of Christ or Christ-following leaders, right? All the more if they have appealed to Paul as if that was what he himself upheld, right? As if Paul was coming along saying, hey, guess what? The Jews are out. The Christians are in. Here's what you guys need to do. And I'm all for it as if Paul was endorsing that mindset. We know, of course, Paul didn't and doesn't endorse that particular mindset. But suppose people in Rome who never met Paul came to the incorrect conclusion that Paul did endorse that. I mean, where would they arrive at that conclusion, right? What letters maybe were they reading? What, what, what false information were they um, interacting with? It's hard to say. But we do know that Paul wrote the letter to the book of Roman, to the, the leaders in Rome, and the, the Gentile Christian Jews and Gentiles in Rome, to get their attention on some very particular topics, of which Romans chapter 14 is one. So that's why we're looking at this. So, Nanos uh, concludes by talking about uh, uh, these Christ-following leaders um, may have assumed that that's what Paul thought. With the arguments we meet in Romans, uh, it's unlikely that that this is really um, something that uh, really and how do I say it? This is really it's really unlikely that the Jewish and Gentile leaders in Paul's day would have um, uh, uh, really come to this conclusion strongly based on their assumption that Paul was teaching this. Um, and we have to examine the, the details as Mark Nanos kind of gives us a little cliffhanger, which we're not going to look at tonight. So um, what we're going to do is begin to continue to challenge this idea as we're studying through this section in my notes with the challenge, the idea that um, Romans represents a break from Judaism. That's really uh, the, 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 the meat of what I'm trying to uh, express here in this particular part of my study. Um, 
And when you read through Christian commentaries, and I'll close down this section with this, when you read through most uh, Christian commentaries on the book of Romans, written from a traditional Christian historical perspective, this makes sense, of course, because uh, Jewish authorities by today are not writing rom- commentaries on Romans, right? The Jewish rabbis aren't really interested today in teaching the book of Romans to their uh, uh, uh uh, participants in their synagogue, right? They don't. The, the, no one, no one in the in the synagogue today really cares about the Book of Rome, Romans. Uh, Christians should, but uh, most Jews don't. But when you read through your basic Christian commentaries today, you're going to get the perspective that um, uh, uh, the Gentile Christians in Rome were trying to make a break from Judaism, and the the expulsion was the opportunity to separate themselves and to kind of launch out on their own and to begin to establish their own uh, um, autonomous uh, author- uh, uh, what we call um, um, communities and uh, continue to develop halakha that distinguished them from Judaism and things like that, and that Paul wouldn't have had a problem with that. That's the basic assumption by today's uh, synagogue, uh, today's um, uh, uh, commentaries, uh, and I challenge that. So, that's going to do it for uh, Romans 14, Fast and Food, oh my. We'll pick this up next week and keep reading through uh, um, Nano's quote. And then, essentially, if you can look on my screen, uh, the quote uh, basically closes out the um, conclusion and the um, uh, background section, and then we're ready to jump on to jump into the red or other parts of the um, uh, the study. Okay, so just keep st- staying with stay with me for all that. Let's turn now to um, exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And we're going through some review material. Uh, I wrote the commentary. It is available on my website at tatesatour.com, as well as graftedin.com. Exploring the Shema is broken up into three papers. Paper one, which deal with God as one. And we looked at some notes last week. We also now have paper Two, which is um, uh, Yahweh and Yeshua, uh, Yahweh and Yeshua, um, is is Jesus God? Let's look. Uh, let me just uh, give me a second. Which page should I be on? Page six. Um, I'm just trying to find out where I left off last week, so I can give you uh, some kind of a semblance of where we're where we're where we're gonna pick up again tonight. Um, yeah, last week we talked about. Hebrew tension. You can see right here, uh, Hebrew tension. And so, um, basically, uh, we talked about how that the Hebrews approach God in concepts concepts of this and that, i.e., he can be two simultaneously, seemingly contradictory concepts at the same time. And the case in point was that um, most people object, Yeshua can't be God because God's internal being, while Yeshua is a created uh, being, right? He's infinite, I'm sorry, he's finite, he's human. Um, But Hebrew tension says, no, we can have both at the same time. It's no problem. uh, we can accept that God can be both visible and invisible at the same time. So that was really from part one, the review. Let's turn now to uh, looking at the the second paper, exploring the Shema paper two, Yahweh and Yeshua, and we uh, are going to look at some review from this section. Let's jump down into the let's get a little bit technical section and uh, pick up uh, some of the notes there. Um, let me scroll down and we'll start right here. So. Uh, 
let's see, how much of this do I want to read tonight? Uh, I might uh, be able to make it through all of this, and I might not. We'll see. We're going to talk about Dr. Dale Tuggy again tonight. Um, we talked about him a few weeks ago, a few months ago. All right, so here's what I have to say in my own commentary. This is something that you might hear, common objection to Trinitarian doctrine. How can God be one and yet three at the same time? So we're talking about what we might determine as a logical contradiction. Um, right? The math doesn't add up. What is more, if God is God, then how can Yeshua and the Holy Spirit also be God, right? Doesn't this position present logical incoherency? As many Trinitarian uh, critics like to argue, quote, the math doesn't add up, right? So I'm going to put a little flash, a little graphic on the screen that shows, you know, one plus one plus one equals one. You got a little monkey scratching his head, right? This doesn't make any sense to most people. Um, don't you even know how to add? One plus one plus one obviously equals three. So um, that's what we're talking about uh, tonight. And if we have time, we'll get into uh, Dr. Tuggy's quotations. This Trinity math problem, quote-unquote, which is also referred to as the logical problem of the Trinity uh, by many philosophers, both Christian and non-Christian. These are my own words. This leads to frequent accusations of worshiping three gods. I mean, that's basically what it boils down to when we hear uh, talk of Trinity, talk of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have the critics saying, "Mm -mm -mm, doesn't work, three gods. I say, to my own personal understanding of the Trinitarian landscape, many varied approaches to understanding and disambiguating the Bible's, how shall we say, proprietary language surrounding God's ontological nature can be articulated for today's modern believers. What I'm trying to alert you to the fact is that the Bible itself uses very unique terminology. That's what I meant by proprietary. And it's written in the language that was natural for the ancients to interact with, and God himself doesn't seem to uh, feel the need to explain and articulate and further elaborate on some of the sparse um, definitions of how he describes himself in his own word. I mean, we moderns are not too happy about that, but the ancients don't seem to complain. Let's keep reading. It is truly the benefit of many centuries of refining the unique, unfolding revelation of the Tanakh, adding to that the strong inferences from the apostolic scriptures, and then finally systematizing the language and theology from the Bible during the patristic periods, right, during um, what we might call the time period when the uh, the church fathers wrote um, uh, and things like that. Uh, all of this is uh, the time period that we're talking about. All of this leading into the various councils and formulations of creeds in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, things like that. All of the stuff that we modern uh, Christians can enjoy having words to express how we understand Yahweh as Trinity. So, are you understanding the, the progressive nature of God's revelation to us? 
the way he describes himself in the Tanakh, the way he talks about himself in the prophets and the writings, and then the way he begins to get more explicit about who he is and what his nature is when we start reading through the Apostolic Scriptures, and then allowing the early church leaders to begin to formulate terminology that we can today uh, just uh, rattle off in our creeds and post on our websites and explain, you know, when someone asks us, what do you believe? And we can start rattling off the, you know, the Apostles' Creed or the Athanasian Creed or something. You know, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, blah, 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 blah. Well, we've got the benefit of all of that because it's built on um, uh, years and years and centuries of theology and um, uh, uh, terminology from the Bible itself. In the words of the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy under the Trinity entry, which Tuggy wrote, by the way, Dr. Tuggy, no Trinitarian doctrine, this is a quote from the, uh, uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia, no Trinitarian doctrine is explicitly taught in the Old Testament. End Pull full stop. According to Dr. Tuggy's uh, viewpoints about the um, uh, uh, Trinity, the, 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 uh, the Old Testament doesn't explicitly teach this. Sophisticated Trinitarians grant this, holding that the doctrine was revealed by God only later in New Testament times, circa 50 to circa 100, and or in the patristic area, uh, circa 100 to 800. Uh, the entry goes on to say they usually also add, though with, that with insight, hindsight, I'm sorry, we can see that a number of texts either portray or foreshadow the working, the co-working of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if I were to click on that link there, it's going to point me to uh, Dr. Tuggy's entry at the Stanford Encyclopedia. So why is why am I bringing this up for our um, discussion today? It's because the um, um, the 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 way the Bible impacts us when we're searching for explicit Trinitarian uh, language in the Old Testament is going to leave us wanting. It's going to leave us a bit disappointed. We're not going to find God coming out and saying, I am God, but I'm made up of three persons. Or, uh, I am God, but my son is God, and the Holy Spirit's also God, so deal with it. You know, uh, God's going to come along and say, I am God. There are no other gods besides me. Um, I am God and there are none besides me. I, you know, I am he. I'm the one who created. I'm the first and the last. I'm, 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 I'm the one. Um, you know, I'm the unique God and things like that. We talked about uh, this word echad in the Shema. Here it was where the Lord of God, the Lord is echad. The Lord is one. The Lord is unique. The Lord is the only one. The Lord, the one and only. Um, yeah. So th- that's what we have to deal with when we're looking at God's word. And yet at the same time, if we firmly believe that Jesus is very God, veiled in flesh, then we have to know and affirm that the God that we're reading about in the talk is, in fact, the God who would later come to be revealed as Yeshua. At the same time, he's very God and just chose not to disclose so much about himself in the time period of the Tanakh. I mean, wow, if we just had one verse in the Old Testament that um, kind of explicitly say that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, you know, it just, it would be case closed, but it just doesn't work that way. And so, um, we have to accept the, uh, the the language of the Bible, and we have to work with the um, information limitation the, that we're uh, um, that we're left with. Let's pick up 
this discussion and continue. Uh, let me read one more paragraph. Um, let's see how far do I want to go down. I may may be able to get down through all of this. I may not. Um, this is uh, dealing with um, the part of the technicalities of looking at Trinity. Um, and so let's just begin to, to read through some of this. In my commentary, I have a section called Let's Get a Little Bit Technical. And we begin to talk about Dr. Tuggy. So let me read through some of this. I may finish this tonight. I may not. I may pick this up next week. It depends on how much time I want to take. Here's what I have to say. I want to create, this is review by the way, so we've already gone through some of this. Um, this is just review for those of you who have been following the study for any length of time and you're, you're kind of lost where we're at. I want to create a sort of case study in this part of my commentary on the issue of challenging the Trinity position and whether or not Yeshua is very God in flesh by presenting and then challenging the perspectives of a well-known well-trained Unitarian Christian by the name of Dr. Dale Tuggy. And um, Dr. Dale Tuggy was gracious enough to actually watch one of my videos. Uh, he may have watched, watched more of them, I'm not certain, but he at least watched one in particular and he interacted with me. He left a comment, and if I have time, I'll show you the comment that he left, and I'll show you the reply that I left with them. And he hasn't replied yet because it was so recent. So um, I say in my commentary here, I'm not just picking on Dr. Tuggy for no good reason. In actuality, Dr. Tuggy, it's just a little bit of background, he's professor of philosophy at the State University of New York. He's a blogger, he's a podcast producer, and he's an analytic theologian. And in reality, I'm actually quite impressed with his work. So Dr. Tuggy, if you do get a chance to listen to this podcast or watch this particular video, I want you to know that I actually respect your opinion, and that's exactly why I brought your opinion into my commentary. It's because it's so well thought out, so well put together, and so highly respected by not just myself, but other theologians, other Trinitarians, and Unitarian theologians. I go on to say, Dr. Tuggy also wrote the Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy that we quoted from earlier. Now, Tuggy argues with admirable force that the Bible does not present Trinitarian doctrine, but instead reflects Unitarian theology. So, um, this is his position, and I respectfully disagree with his position. But nevertheless, I highly respect his research, and he's a really smart dude. I mean, he's way uh, more uh, learned than I am. Um, I would not like to debate him in an open debate. Uh, I think I would lose. But I think I would have a, um, an informed time um, dialoguing with him offline. Um, not that he's going to change my mind on Trinitarian versus Unitarian, but just the very methodology and the tools that he used to uh, approach the text and the very logical um, approach um, is, is worth uh, investigating, it's worth uh, researching. Um, <clears throat> you, do it, you do yourself a service to be able to um, carefully understand your position and to be able to articulate it the way people like Dr. Tegui can. So I write, thus... Um, for our interests here in paper two of my commentary, Tuggy's teachings that Yeshua is most definitely not God are worthy of our careful investigation. In all fairness, in certain 
instances, Yeshua could be described as God. If I go into understand Tuggy's position correctly, uh, as I watch like his debates with um, other Trinitarians, um, we could allow Yeshua to be called God, but we'd have to um, um, clarify that term God uh, in its special case, not to be uh, equated as the being known as God, but um, given special privilege of enjoying the status of worship uh, right alongside uh, God the Father, uh, simply because God the Father has um, bestowed this um, title upon Jesus and indeed commanded all men to worship the Son with this particular amount of adoration. I go on to say, therefore... Uh, Dr. Tuggy's insightful remarks about the, quote, confusion, end quote, uh, that is, say, his perspective, of speaking about God in selves and threes and in modes, right? He talks about, uh, he has these uh, lengthy discussions about identity and things like that. Um, this particular discussion, in my opinion, is worth taking a brief look at here in this portion of my notes. I go on to say, Tuggy's own Christian beliefs surrounding the Trinity can be summarized by his own opening statement uh, to a recent public YouTube debate with Dr. Micah Brown, and then I'm going to go on and talk about um, what Tuggy says. I'm not going to do this tonight. I'm going to break off right here uh, where we look at what Dr. Tuggy says. We'll pick this up next week. What I want to do for you instead is uh, just take the last maybe five minutes to show you um, one of the videos that Dr. Tuggy watched of mine. I'm certain he must have watched it because he, he um, interacted with me on it. And then I, you'll see where I wrote back to him. So here's a, a video uh, that I've got. Let's just make it a little bigger for everyone to see. In fact, I don't want to make it full screen yet because I want you to see his comments. Let me first show you uh, a part of the video. And then um, uh, for those of you with me in my live class, Let's see, are you going to be able to hear this? Let me change a few things. Let me change a few settings. Give me a second. Okay, I think this should work. All right, uh, let me just take a look at this. Okay, you guys ready? With regards to the analytic theologian Unitarian position, recall Dr. Dale Tuggy's um, uh, position, right? With regard to these particular critics, both popularizers and sometimes acad academics, so listen up, they often hold up the Trinity as an exemplar of Christian irrationalism, proof that Christians cannot be both reasonable and fruitful. For both misguided believers and ill-informed critics, I say, the answer tends to be that they have mistaken the elements of Trinitarian doctrine. They really just don't know. Um, properly how to understand Trinitarian doctrine, and therefore they just misunderstand it. They don't know how to... All right, so what I want to do is um, I want to, to uh, interact uh, just real quick with some of what I said in the previous video. Uh, so um, what we have is a uh, one of my videos that I recorded. Uh, it's uh, episode number 38.2, I believe it is. And uh, what you can see, if I can get my um, uh, comments to show up here, I'm wait, just waiting for uh, YouTube to, to show them. Let me see if I can kick it into gear that way. Nope, and that didn't work. Bear with me. If this isn't going to show, then we'll just do this next week. But basically, or I'll take a screenshot and show you guys what I'm trying to refer to. Uh, YouTube doesn't want to seem to show my... Uh, um, 
uh, the comments right now. It's, it's got a little circle there spinning. Let me try and refresh it and see if that'll work. There we go. Okay, that's a little better. Let me blow that up for you guys so you can see what I'm talking about here. All right. I think that should be good enough. All right. So um, what you can see here is uh, uh, someone by the um, poster name of um, Conpot Con Padawan, <laughs> which is actually Dr. Tuggy. Uh, here's what he had to say. Uh, you can see in my um, uh, uh, screenshot here. Uh, Tuggy here, what you quote or summarize is my comment on one interpretation of traditional Trinity language. In many publications, uh, CEG Trinity and the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, I've discussed and criticized many different interpretations of traditional Trinity language. Uh, so Tuggy goes on to say that he's already uh, discussed Trinity in his Stanford Encyclopedia entry. For you, he's speaking to me now, for you to present um, this is what I think the Trinity is, is at best misleading. I deny that there is any one Trinity theology hiding behind the common language. See my short book, What is the Trinity? For an accessible way to weigh in, in to seeing the differences. Of course, Tuggy's comments. He says, "Of course, I've always known that the aim of Trinity theorizing is to avoid both modalism and tritheism. However, some Trinities do fall into the first ditch, and others fall into the second, despite the intentions of the theorists. It depends on what they actually say. Three persons in one essence or being amounts to." So, this is what Dr. Suggy says to me, so I don't claim that the Trinity is demonstrably incoherent because there's no one such theory. The various Trinity theories fare differently when it comes to the Bible and to our God-given common sense. In the second half of the video, you just switched the subject from Trinity to Incarnation. I think the common way of reading that famous patches in Philippians 2 is mistaken. On that, see my, and he puts a little link to his Trinity's um, uh, uh, podcast there. It's Trinity's blog. All right, and I actually replied to um, uh, Dr. Tuggy. If I click on the re uh, click reply, you can see some of what I wrote here. I'm not going to read all of that, um, but I do want to show you that um, I actually apologized to him for um, misrepresenting and misunderstanding. And so let me just jump to that part right there. I say, I apologize for misrepresenting your position in my YouTube video to my embarrassment. I was actually quoting another Trinitarian author and his views on your view. And then I put, see the link to the original article uh, from um, Thomas M. Uh, Cothran, which is the, uh, the author that I was quoting uh, when I was um, looking at Dr. Tuggy's view. And so... Um, I go on to say, uh, in conclusion, nevertheless, as an additional author, I realize that I am personally fully responsible for my poor research in differentiating between primary and secondary sources, as well as how accurate they do or do not corroborate with each other at any given time. In my haste, I conflated his thoughts with my own and ended up with an unintentional misleading quote about your theology. When I get a chance to do so, I will record a type of retraction on a future video to note your clarifications and point viewers to both your Trinity's blog as well as the original other author's material for folks to evaluate for themselves. Keep up, keep up the good work, reminding fellow Christians to, quote, love God enough to think about him. That's a line from his, his podcast. Uh, can't wait for you and I to meet Yeshua in heaven one day so that he can set the record straight for both of us. Laugh out loud. And then I signed my uh, reply there. By the way... This video that I'm recording right now, live with all of you uh, listening along, does represent 
uh, some of the, uh, what I said, I'm going to record a uh, type of retraction. So I'm apologizing to Dr. Tuggy for misrepresenting his perspective. However, what I didn't apologize for in my uh, um, uh, video um, is that, and I say this here, uh, that being said, nevertheless, as a Messianic Jew, I nevertheless fundamentally disagree with one of your primary arguments about Yeshua Jesus being a creature of God. This type of Christology reminds me too much of Arianism and what the JWs and Mormons teach. Yes, I realize that the man Yesh Jesus had beginnings as and was born just like all human beings were, yet I accept that his heavenly origins are rooted in the eternal word that has forever existed with the Father. Dual natures presents no problem for my Hebraic thought processes. And so, um, yes, Dr. Tuggy, if you do get a chance to watch this particular video, I'm sure you're going to read my uh, comments when you get around to them, um, seeing the reply in, my, in your inbox there. Uh, I disagree with your position as a Unitarian. However, I apologize for misrepresenting you in my particular uh, video, uh, uh, since I was quoting another author, not quoting the primary source, which would have been you. So, my bad. I apologize. Hope you and I can still continue to um, dialogue, perhaps one day, and uh, maybe even have a discussion about this particular topic. Oh, by the way, uh, that particular article, if you're interested in uh, looking it up for yourself, which I linked to in my video, is the Trinity contradictory, the case of Dale Tuggy by Thomas M. M. Cothran or Cothran. I'm not sure how to say his name there. Um, you can read that article for yourself. The link is in my video below. Let's turn to the um, liturgy real quick, read that, and then we'll watch the video, and then we'll just close in tonight's uh, discussion. The uh, liturgy tonight is Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34, and we read the English last week, and so we're only going to read the Hebrew tonight, okay? So starting in verse 31 right there, uh, for those of you with me in the uh, uh, live study, you can see on your screen. Let's just start in the Hebrew right there on the right side of the page. The Hebrew says, Verse 32 says, Verse Verse 33. And the final pasik, the final verse, verse 34. Et reehu veish et achaiv le mor, du et adonai, ki kulam ye du oti, le miktanat, le miktanam, vaad gudolam num adonai, ki eslach la avonam ulchatatam lo ezkarod. And that'll do it for the liturgy from the Tanakh. Let's turn now to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll drop down to verse 10. We'll read verse 10 through 14 in the Greek, and only the Greek, since we read the, Hebrew, the uh, English last week. Starting verse 10, uh, Galatians 3 says, Hasoi gar ex ergonamu eisen hupa katarin eisen gegraptai gar hati ep kataratas pas hos 
uk emene pasatoiske gramnois into biblio tu namu tu poesiaota. Verse 11. Hati de enamo udes de kaiutai para totheo delon hati ha de ek pistios zesadai. Verse 12. Ha de namas uk esten ek pistios o ha poesas auta zesatai en autois. Verse 13. Christos humas exegorosen ek teis katara, kata, uh, kataras tu namu genamenas huperehimun, katara hati gegraptai, epikataratas pas ho krenamenas epikutsulu. And the final verse, verse 14. Hina eis ta ethne e he eulogia tu Abraham genetai, in Jesu Christu, Christo hina te evangelian tu pneumatas labumen dia tes pistios. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. And you know what? Since it's a little late in the study already, I'm going to skip the video for tonight. We'll jump straight into the dismissal. But instead, I'm going to change things up, and next week we'll open up the study with the video. How's that? All right. You guys ready? Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And I'm so thankful to be able to interact with the students uh, and people from around the world, including Dr. Tuggy, even on issues that we can disagree on. Nevertheless, we're all in search of truth. And I pray that you will come along and help us find truth. Help us to put past our own preconceived um, ideas on what the text says. Help us to embrace what your Holy Spirit is revealing to us, even if it's difficult to understand, even if it's difficult to fathom and to, to uh, uh, contemplate and to comprehend, um, even if the math doesn't seem to add up. Lord, help us to seek truth, to understand truth, to share truth with other people. Give us um, divine appointments so that we can share our gospel, um, our um, uh, our experience with other people, uh, our witness with other people. Help us to be aware of the fact that there's so many people out there today that don't know Jesus, and it really doesn't matter how they quite articulate Trinity or or the Apostle Paul or the Book of Romans. At the moment, they simply need a Messiah. They need you to break into their situation and rescue them from their own personal sin and shame to open their eyes to understand their need for God. Help us to be that witness. Go with us tonight. Continue to carry us along by your word, by your spirit. Keep us safe and bring us back together next week. And we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. 
because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 